Would you pray with me? God and Father, we pray that you would be with us now as we study your word. Pray that you would be with all of us, though we are sinful, as we submit to its authority. Be with me, though I am sinful, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. The idea that underlies everything we're going to talk about this morning is that you cannot really understand and fight against evil if you don't have a full understanding of the good. You cannot resist the temptations of sin without having a proper appreciation for the goodness and beauty of righteousness. And I think one of our struggles as Christians is that we have often lost our ability to really articulate and explain to people what the good is. We still want to resist evil. We still say you should avoid certain bad things, but we don't do a good job of actually holding up the alternative. I think about like the way we talk to our kids often, and we try to encourage our kids not to do certain bad things as Christian parents, but the way we do it is often really nothing more than saying, you better not do those bad things or bad things are going to happen to you. It's sort of the religious version of the old Saturday Night Live, you're going to end up living in a van down by the river. And the problem with that is that that's not enough. Sin is attractive. Evil has a certain allure. And if we're going to encourage people to turn from it, we really need a picture of the attractiveness, the alluringness of God and of the life that he calls us to. And I think in part, that is what John is doing in this vision. In the beginning of uh, our passage, we have a couple of things happening as John sets the stage. In verse 9, one of the seven angels who brought the plagues comes and says, come, I'm going to show you something. And then in verse 10, John is carried away in the spirit and he sees this vision. That's the way this is introduced. And in Revelation 17, that exact same sequence of things happens. Um, An angel, that's one of the angels that brought the seven plagues, comes and says, come, I'm going to show you something. And then it says that John is carried away in the spirit and he's given a vision. And in Revelation 17, the vision he's given is of Babylon the great prostitute who represents the corrupted city of this world. And there he's shown the ugliness of Babylon and God's people are called to come out of her. And so you're given this picture of the fact that sin is evil. But now with this exact same introduction, what's happening is that John is being shown a different vision. It's not just that he's shown the badness of Babylon. What he also needs to be shown is the goodness of this heavenly city the beauty of the new Jerusalem, because God's people are not really going to be able to come out of Babylon until they have that vision. And so here's what I want to do this morning, recognizing that. What I want to do is look at this picture of the new Jerusalem. And of course, what this is picturing is ultimately something that is in the future, but it's something that's supposed to speak to our lives, because as we see this future coming city that's an image of Jesus's return and creation's renewal, we're not just learning about something that's going to happen then, but we're given a picture of why goodness is truly good, which is supposed to empower our lives right now. So what we're going to do is we're just going to start at the beginning of our reading and walk through it and look at the new Jerusalem and seek to apply that to our image of the good. So let's walk through 
the beginning, we see New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And this actually, we saw this same thing last week at the beginning of Revelation 21. It's sort of like it takes that moment from last week and zooms in on it now. And first of all, we talked about this last week, but we need to be clear about what the New Jerusalem is. It is not a literal like space station that's floating down from the sky to land on planet Earth. We know that for a couple of reasons, but the simplest is because we're told what it is in verse 9. If you read it, it says, Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls full of the last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we're told that this new Jerusalem is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And again, that's an image throughout Revelation and throughout the Bible of the people of God. It represents the community of faith all across time and space. And the reason that this is sort of a descending city coming to earth is because in many ways this is a picture of the resurrection and of the saints from all throughout time and space being gathered together into this new creation. And that whole people of God theme is made clear as you work through the details of the next few verses. We're not going to read them all, but we see this city has 12 gates that each bear one of the names of the tribes of Israel. So it's God's people in the Old Testament through which entry is gained. And at the same time, it's the 12 foundations that have the names of the 12 apostles. So it's the authority of the apostles that found the New Testament church that is a part of this city. So this city is a continuation of the heritage of Israel built on the authority and witness of the apostles. It is all God's people together. And what makes this city so beautiful is that it shines with the glory of God. In verse 11, it says, It has the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Popping up repeatedly in this description of the city, while it's pictured in terms of gemstones and gold, is this idea of its clearness, which does not mean that it's sort of see-through so much as that it's perfectly reflective. We're going to see God's glory shines in this new creation like a light, and what makes this city glorious is the way that it reflects that light of God outward. In the resurrection, we are glorified. That is the language that the Bible uses for us, and that doesn't mean so much that we are made glorious as that what happens is that God's glory fully and perfectly starts to shine out of, shine through us. In Christianity, our glory is always like the glory of the moon. It's beautiful, but it's always reflecting the light of the sun. And here's what I want you to do for a minute. Just imagine what that sort of life lived showing forth the glory of God, what that would actually mean compared to the lives that we so often live in this world. So much of sin's selfishness rests in the fact that it is about seeking glory for ourselves. I mean, why, why are we selfish, right? Why, why do we seek our own good over the good of others? Well, it's because we're trying to maximize our glory and show forth how great we are. Why are we often so cruel and hurtful to other people? Well, it's because if I'm trying to maximize my glory, I feel like other people's glory is a threat to that, and so I'm trying to diminish their glory why is it that we live in so much fear and anxiety and uncertainty in the world? The answer is because our glory is by its nature a fragile thing, and we're always worried about losing it, and we're always seeking to jealously protect it. What would the world be like? Just imagine what life would be like 
if you were freed from all of that. Imagine a world where we just say, God's glory is what matters, not mine. How freeing it is to have no concern of what people think of us for our reputation. I mean, how much energy do we spend, even when we're doing good things, do we spend getting noticed and getting the credit and having it be something that builds up our reputation? Imagine how powerful it would be to just never worry about, to just do what is good and what is needful and not care about where the recognition falls. Or imagine a world where I say, God's glory is what matters And that includes God's glory reflected in the lives of others. That if I want God to be most glorified, I can't do that alone. I need these people. So I'm actually trying to help the people around me to shine more brightly and become more beautiful and more fully show forth what God has made them to be. Because it's God's glory, not mine, that's what matters. And imagine a world where we say God's glory is what matters. So why be afraid? Nothing can rob God of his greatness. Nothing can take his goodness from him. And so if that's the thing that I'm invested in, there's just nothing to worry about because God is glorious and his glory will fill the earth. Of course, when we imagine that world, what we have to recognize is that it's one thing to imagine what my life would be like if I was truly living that way all of the time. But it's an even more astounding thing to imagine a world where everybody is living this way. I mean, You wouldn't have to be anxious because everyone else is seeking your good as you're seeking theirs, seeking to glorify God in the way they treat you. Just do you feel the beauty, the goodness of that world? That's the beginning of what makes this new Jerusalem beautiful is that it is the church shining forth with the reflected glory of God. Let's go back to our text. We get this series of measurements of the city coming up next in our passage, and we're not going to read through all of them, but let me try to summarize. Uh, The city is measured, and they say it is 12,000 stadia, which is about 1,400 miles. And notice that it's 1,400 miles in width, and in length, and in height. So the city is pictured as like a giant cube, 1,400 miles on a side. So what's up with that? Well, three things to consider. One, throughout Revelation, Numbers are used symbolically, and the number 12,000 is probably just a combination of 12, which throughout Revelation is an image of the people of God. We already saw it here with the 12 tribes and 12 apostles, and then a 1,000, which is the the number of, of fullness and completeness. So this is the full measure of the people of God. Two, 12,000 stadia is also roughly the size of the known ancient Greek world. So when John pictures this city coming to earth, he describes it as the size of the earth, as his readers would have thought of it. So this thing is as big as the entire world. And three, this cube, and measuring it as a cube, is almost certainly an image of the temple of God. In fact, if you go back to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision that's very similar to this part of John's vision, with an angel coming, with a measuring rod, and he measures the temple, the central building of the temple containing the holy place and the most holy place. And so what all this is picturing is it's an image of the whole earth, of all of creation, being filled with God's people in such a way that the earth itself becomes God's temple, the place where he specially dwells. All of creation is the temple of God, which is spelled out in verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, 
For its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its light is the lamp. Now again, bear in mind all of this is a vision. This does not mean that the sun and moon and stars must literally cease to exist, but it's a way of saying that God, because he's dwelling here in the world and the world is his temple, is shining forth in his light and glory in such a way that we can walk by it and our steps are illuminated by it. And because of this glory and light, the operations of the world are restored to their right order too. If you read verses, start in verse 24, it says, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So this is an image of restored social order and human community. We maybe need to recognize that because I think we, especially in our place in the world and time, can have this wrong idea. We think, I think sometimes that sort of human institutions are part of the problem, that all human institutions just need to be done away with, and that what heaven is going to be is this life where I just sort of live as this individual with God, completely free from all connection to other people. And that is not at all the idea of scripture. Human institutions are corruptible in scripture, and because of sin they are often corrupted, And in Revelation, the images of the beast and of Babylon are both pictures of those corrupted human institutions. But human institutions are also um, something that can be redeemed. The nations, John says, will walk in the light of the city of God. And the kings of the earth won't be annihilated, but will bring their glory and the honor of the nations into that city to lay it before the Lord. And so what we see is that in this new creation, it's not just that my individual priorities are changed, but the whole structure of the world in some ways is still recognizable, but is also reconfigured so that it is also all about the glory of God. And of course, part of why that's possible is because those things that in this age can corrupt those institutions are eliminated. We see that in verse 27. It says that nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So when we saw a little bit earlier that the gates of the city are never shut as the nations bring their glory into it, what we're supposed to recognize there is this, that sin will be done away with in such a way that both our lives and those social connections and structures that we live within can function the way they were always meant to function. I think that can actually be an idea that a lot of Christians just miss. We don't understand how Christianity can connect to those things. So let me, let me try to do this. Let me use your career as an example. If you have a career that's outside of the home, or if you used to have a career that's outside of the home that you retired from, think about that career for a minute. Now, it is true that some of us will have to find new careers in the new heavens and new earth. I'm going to have to find one. And if you are like a doctor or a police officer, you're probably at least going to have a very, very different kind of career in new creation. And of course, since we have an infinite amount of time in the new heavens and new earth, presumably you'll be free to pursue lots of interests over time. But here's the thing. Have you ever thought about the fact that in that world, you will still work and serve the people around you? 
And so just think about that fact and think about the career you have right now and try to imagine that career, what it will look like remade. So like, let me just use a few different jobs I know some folks here at Kish have. So maybe on one level, if you work in like construction or landscaping or something like that, look, there is a lot of that is corrupted and messed up about that, I know, in terms of pay and in terms of project overruns and dealing with frustrating customers and all of those things. But in that, do you recognize that there is this core of goodness? That there's this thing that happens when you finished like building something or or working in a in a lawn to make it beautiful, where you can stand back and look at this thing and recognize that there's this beauty and order you've imposed in the world. That kernel of beauty and goodness in the new creation that is what that job will be all about. Or if you work in, I don't know, like manufacturing, right? Human creativity and ingenuity will still be present in the new creation. And I know it will, it will be different because we'll be making things simply to bless people with all the sin and the bad bosses and the, the, the greed of the current age taken out of it. But it is good to make things and bless other people with them. Or, or if you, like I know here at Kish, we have a contingent who are engineers and work on like designing airplanes or spaceship parts or whatever. And I mean, there is goodness in that work that, that glorifies God and is an institution that will continue into the new heavens and new earth. And the reason I'm using that as an example, what I'm inviting you to do is to think about not just what my life would look like if it was transformed to be about the glory of God, but think about what your career, think about what the, the government, think about what the, the social structures that surround us would look like when they go under that kind of transformation and recognize the goodness of that as well. All right, back to the ending of our text. In chapter 22, verse 1, John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this is a picture of Eden restored in the first place. In Eden, that first garden where God places humanity, the tree of life was offered to Adam and Eve, and they instead chose to eat of the tree where they got to define good and evil for themselves instead of taking that life that God offered them. And here we see Eden restored, a river of life and a tree of life sprout in the middle of the city, and the life that flows out of them will be for the healing of the nations. So it's Eden restored, but it's also something else. And this is one of the coolest things to me about this passage. It's also Eden fulfilled. It's not just Eden restored, but Eden fulfilled. Let me show you this. Back in Genesis 1, God gives humanity a job to do. We've talked about it before, but let me read this to you. From Genesis 1.28, it says that God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. So God plants this Garden of Eden, and he puts Adam and Eve in it, and he says, here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, you as humanity, and you're supposed to have dominion and subdue it. We, we learn in Genesis 2, what that really ultimately means is you're supposed to work the world and spread the garden outward so that the whole earth might be filled with this sort of Eden that Eden's surrounded by wilderness, and their calling is to spread into the world and work it to spread Eden to the ends of the earth. That is the calling, 
that Adam and Eve rebel against and refuse when they turn against God. Now consider where we are at the end. The new Jerusalem, this city full of the people of God, the size of the earth, comes down to our world and fills it, and creation is subdued. It's no longer a wilderness. It's not even a garden. It's a city. And so the crazy thing that John is saying here is that here's the story of Scripture. God gives this command to Adam and Eve, and he says, fill the earth and fill it with my glory. And they rebel against that command, but God goes ahead and accomplishes that mission anyway. His mission is completed, even though we in our sin rebelled against it. So we have creation restored and completed, and then we have this image of final perfect communion. Start in verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We will live in the presence of God and experience communion with him and reign with God, and all that is dark will finally pass away. So that is the vision of the new Jerusalem. And then here is the thing that I want us to think about. What does it mean? Here's the question. What does it mean to really be alive, to truly live a good life? In ancient Greece, philosophers would actually discuss that question a lot. They had a word for that good life that was eudaimonia, which you could translate maybe as like human flourishing. And they had a lot of different opinions about human flourishing. But they, they mostly recognized two things. One is that a life that was truly good, that was flourishing, it had to be about more than just seeking pleasure. It wasn't that pleasure was wrong, but that if your life was all about eating steaks and drinking wine and satisfying your kind of physical desires, that was not a particularly good life, that we were made for more than that. And two, the second thing they recognized is that it meant more than just being passive or more than just avoiding bad stuff. A truly good life was an active life, a life spent doing good. Of course, they disagreed about the details about what then you should actually do. But that question, which we in many ways have been exploring throughout our history as human beings, that is the right question. And it is a question that scripture speaks to. Scripture seeks to describe for us what a truly good life, a truly flourishing life looks like. It's trying to challenge the other answers that we might give and offer a God-shaped vision for human flourishing. In many ways, this image of New Jerusalem is doing that. Again, like we said, it is also an image of the future that Jesus will create. But as we picture that future, what we're really being given is an image of what my individual life and our lives as a community should look like. And what do we see in that picture? Well, we see that human flourishing means living for the glory of God. That the most meaningful, most beautiful, best life we can have is one spent seeking to maximize our showing forth, our reflecting of God's glory to the world, that that is the thing that gives purpose and significance and goodness to our lives. Human flourishing means glorifying God in our societies and communities and work 
The good life means doing good work and building goodness together and bringing it before God, bringing the honor of the nations before God that he might be glorified. And human flourishing ultimately means living in the presence of God and experiencing the life that he offers, seeing, in his, seeing his face, living in his light, and walking with him in fellowship and relationship. That is the life that scripture invites us to. That is how it pictures human flourishing. And there's two things as we close that I want you to recognize about that. One is that that picture of the good life is fundamentally different than many of the pictures offered by our world. An important habit we need to cultivate when you're watching TV, when you're talking with people, whatever, is to ask the question, what is the picture you are trying to sell me of human flourishing? What is your image of goodness? And then compare the beauty of that image to the beauty of scripture's image. I mean, we mentioned talking with our kids, and this is what I was getting at. Think about the sort of lives that they are tempted to lead, lives that are wasted on entertainment, lives that are spent feeding basic appetites for food and drink and hobbies and bodily pleasure, lives spent pursuing self-validation and money and worldly praise. It is not enough to tell your kids it's wrong to live that way. What we need to say is that isn't beautiful. It isn't as beautiful as this. You can spend your life serving and glorifying the God of the universe and experiencing communion with him and blessing and building worthwhile things in the world that will endure into eternity. That is what we're supposed to communicate. That this image of human flourishing is much different and much better than the ones that the world would offer us. And then the second truth is this, that that life, that life in the New Jerusalem, is one that we can begin to experience now. Even though it won't be fully realized until Jesus returns, it's a life we can begin to live now. Remember, what makes the world new? What allows this life to explode forth and rule the world? It is that the world becomes the temple of God, that his presence dwells in creation in a way that makes creation new and restored. Where is God's temple right now? Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? We are the temple of God. We are individually. God's Spirit actually dwells in us and unites us to Jesus. And that's true of us together. The community of faith is pictured as this temple of living stones within which God lives. What we are being invited into in the present is the life beginning to live as citizens of that new Jerusalem in this world that is not yet made new. We will do it imperfectly, we still struggle with the flesh, and we will all long for the day when creation itself is brought to its completion and our bodies are glorified, but right now we can begin to pursue that life of true goodness, of true flourishing, as we seek to follow God. So here is the invitation I want to close us with this week. I want to invite you to take some time to ask yourself how your life might be different if you were pursuing that kind of true life. How would your life be different if you looked at the beauty of the life that God is calling us toward and sought to live that life right now? Spend some time just reflecting on that and ask yourself, is this, is the stuff I'm living for right now truly good? 
Are the things I'm pursuing truly beautiful? Am I really seeking human flourishing in my life? Or am I content with something less than that? Something that's easy or pleasurable or safe? So ask yourself that and just imagine what your life in Christ could be. Imagine what that life God created you for looks like. Taste its sweetness, because the more that we drink of that cup of glory, the more our lives will begin to be changed. Let's come now before the Lord in prayer. Father, it is the season of resurrection, the season of new life. We pray, Father, that you would call our hearts towards true life. Show us the foolishness of chasing dead idols. Give us passion and zeal for your ways. Open our eyes to the beauties of your righteousness and your bounty and your provision. Father, we pray in this Easter season that you would be at work bringing life to us, your church. We so often lose sight of the life you call us to. We are distracted compromised, idolatrous. Bring us to repentance. Call us to pursue what is truly good, your glory and our flourishing. Revive us, O Lord, and help us to live the life you call us to. We also pray in this season that you would be working life in our world. We are so mindful of the challenges that so many face because of the coronavirus pandemic. We pray for those who are sick, or who are facing the loss of someone they loved. We pray for those who are lonely. We pray for healthcare workers and first responders and those working in retail and all others who are putting themselves at risk in their vocations. We pray for those facing lost jobs, lost incomes, and insecure futures. Be with all of them, we pray, and work resurrection life. We also pray for all those with other struggles who in the midst of this crisis find their struggles heightened or neglected. There's much that is broken in our world. Broken homes, broken marriages, broken bodies, broken communities, broken hearts. Be healing and knitting up those who face such brokenness and bring your life and resurrection there. Most of all, Father, we pray that we would be built up as your temple on earth and pray that you would hasten the day when the earth itself becomes that temple. Bring near your great salvation. Fill up the book of life and come and reign, Lord Jesus. Let your bride descend from heaven and your rule extend over the nations and in your coming make all things new. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And now join us, friends, as we are led in the Lord's Prayer.